We did the Thanksgiving special last year. That has to be one of our best podcast episodes. We talked about Sasquatching a... What was it called? Sketch... Sketchcocking. Sketchpotching a turkey. What did I call it? Sasquatch. It's like the mythical flattened turkey. No one's listening to this. I know. I know. Yeah, it's very important that we're on Spotify. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Capelo. I'm an assistant professor of government here at William & Mary. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hi, Marcus. What's up, Jeffrey? How are you? I'm doing very well. Uh, this is our uh, annual Thanksgiving special where we share recipe ideas, talk a little bit about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, just that, you know, the way we do it. Tell you one thing, I'm not going to Sasquatch my turkey this year. Good. That was good. a big mistake last learned year. learned a lesson. I think uh, the first thing we should do is provide an update on my garage door situation because I, uh, I've gotten a lot of listener mail about this. I'm sure you have. People are worried. People tell are the worried. people what, what are going, what's going on. And I'll tell you what I did. I used my new ladder to remove the circuit board from the garage door opener, the mechanism that pulls the garage door open. And I brought it inside my home. And then I stared, I stared at it for a while and uh, watched a couple of YouTube videos. And then I took a, a magnifying glass or I, and I used my iPhone like macro photo mode to scan the solder on the back of the circuit board to look for cracks. The idea being that these cracks in the solder would break some connections, causing the garage door opener to malfunction. I did this for, I don't know, 10 minutes, had my kids come over, look at it, see if they could find any cracks, no cracks. I saw nothing wrong with this circuit board at all. So in the absence of anything like specific to do, I took a soldering iron and I just re-soldered like everything I could find. Just tapping the thing over and over again with like, you know, that this soldering iron. Connect it all. Yeah. Like trying to melt the solder that was already on there. So it would reflow in case there was a crack, mm -hmm. it would like reflow around it and, and restore that connection. Seems like a sensible strategy. Knowing as I did this, that there's no way this is going to work. That this is like, this is a very low probability play at this point. Very low. So I uh, finished doing this, go back up my new ladder, put the thing back in the unit, plug it in, and I'm greeted with a kind of whirring grinding sound as if the garage door opener is about to explode. And uh, I, I then unplug, <laughs> unplug the garage door opener because seriously, like it sounded like it was going to explode. So I unplugged it. And then, um, and then I called the garage door repair guy. Um, and the, then I'm faced with like a moral dilemma, right? Like now, what do you say to this person when they come? When they I come, think you just, you, you, you got to come clean and explain the situation. I, I did. He's going to understand. Well, I emphasized all the she. problems it was having, you know, before I attempted my intervention. Right. And now it's about to explode. But before it was just like not working. Um, and then I kind of gave it a push over the edge and the garage door repair guy um, declined to look at it. He's like, yeah, you need a new garage door. Oh, oh. you know. So easy for him to say. Right. So he, he like looked up at it. It was unplugged. He's like, yeah, that's not, we're, we're not fixing that thing. That thing is too old. So, yeah. So I tried. So I'm out the, I don't know what I bought a $9 soldering iron. So that's uh well, you'll use that for some other purpose for some other, yeah. For some other ill-fated project inspired by uh, watching too many YouTube videos. So um, I have a, they are scheduled to come and replace my garage door opener. Um, I think on Monday. So. Do you mind asking me, uh, do I, do you mind asking me, do you mind if I ask you 
what that's going to set you back. Yes. So they, I mean, no, I don't, I don't mind. Um, you don't mind. No. Uh, so should we talk Good. about Russia? <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. Like, I, I think I could get it at Home Depot, but then I got to pay them to install it by the hour. So I don't know. This way it's like warrantied by them. And I don't know. It's a path of least resistance is to just pay them the money. So there go most of my predicted winnings, you know. <laughs> I like how you said most. Oh, yeah. That, no, that I means, you know, yeah. that. Uh, you, you give me some indication of, of how just how well you did. So we were, we were talking before the show, Jeff, about how it's a little surprising that Ukraine still has Internet access. Yeah. So I want to um, plug a excellent episode of the Lawfare podcast that I recently listened to um, with Matt Tate, who's a cybersecurity expert. Uh, talking about this question of of why is the internet still on in Ukraine? And there was this kind of before the the war, we kind of all assumed that Russia would lead off its invasion with a kind of cyber offensive where they would try to take out cyber infrastructure. They would try to take out uh, Ukrainian infrastructure, Ukrainian communications, and maybe even cut off Ukraine from its communications with the rest of the world. That did not happen. We've seen some kind of indications of of cyber attacks uh, on various uh, various entities, not just in Ukraine, but other other uh, kind of surrounding NATO states um, that seem to have Russian origins. But it comes out, I think, to much less than everyone was expecting going in. And one piece of this story is, why has Russia allowed Ukraine to wage what I think by all accounts, is a very successful information operation in terms of getting a positive message about Ukraine out to the rest of the world, which leads to potentially more support for Ukraine by countries that are providing, you know, military capabilities to, to Ukraine. So, you know, we, images of Zelensky giving speeches on YouTube, speaking in front of legislatures all over the world, uh, accepting awards, having meetings, all of this happening with the assistance of uh, what seems to be a robust internet connection in Kiev, right? Uh, and so the question is, why is Russia allowing this to happen? And, you know, there are, there are kind of differing views on this. And this podcast was interesting because it goes into some of those theories. So I'll just kind of recommend it to everyone. One of the, the questions here is maybe Russia doesn't see this as a high enough priority to use military capabilities on. That is, they are saving their precision guided weapons, what they would need to like take out uh, internet infrastructure for other targets they, they consider more strategically important. I'm a little skeptical of this because I, I feel like at least at the beginning of the war, there wasn't this, there wasn't necessarily the shortage of precision weapons that we kind of see now. So that strikes me as a little bit, uh, if this had been a goal of Russia, the cost to do it was fairly low at the outset. It seems like this was not part of Russia's initial strategy. Right, because they didn't know they were going to be losing this far into it, right? So they would they would have thought maybe let's let's kick this off with taking their internet out, out plus all the other military stuff that we're going to do, right? And so like another theory here would be that they want to leave all the infrastructure intact because they're about to just take over this country in a week, and um, and then they want to be able to get the message out um, and say that they didn't destroy the country in 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 taking it. That you know that's that's one theory that doesn't really hold up after like month number one or two, right? Um, then you have to question why are they continuing to allow this? But the focus more recently has been on. Uh, Ukrainian energy infrastructure, right? The power grid and the power system. And that kind of has the follow-on effect of knocking out internet in some places because, you know, the rolling blackouts and all that stuff um, that, you, that you see in Kiev now. I thought it was because Elon Musk was like giving them devices. 
another theory here is that uh, Western support has helped keep the the internet on, which I think there's there's some truth to this. And we saw a lot of stories about Starlink, um, the uh, the Elon Musk company um, providing satellite communication for Russian or for Ukrainian forces that are kind of on the front lines of the conflict, um, and that has clearly played a role, played an important role, um, and not just not just Starlink, but other Western country countries providing support for infrastructure, providing equipment and material to repair damaged infrastructure in Ukraine. But it's not just why is the internet still there? I think there's a broader question here, which is about the kind of competing information operations that we have between Ukraine, which is trying to get its message out, trying to rally support for its side, and Russia, which, you know, is employing its usual kind of misinformation, disinformation tactics. And this has been aided in some places by some cyber manipulation, some cyber attacks. But really, it's kind of an old school Cold War era propaganda story, right? And and we don't often talk about it in that way. By saying that Ukraine is pursuing an information operation here, I don't mean to uh, minimize like the, the the righteousness of their cause, right? Ukraine is defending itself against this aggressor, but it's still important for Ukraine to get the word out about what's happening and to try to rally support for its side. And that's not, there's nothing wrong with that. That's what they, they should be doing. And they've, I think, been very successful in doing that in, uh, in Western media. Their Twitter presence is excellent, right? And so they, they're doing a good job kind of getting the message out. And, but Russia at the same time has had a lot of trouble, I think, countering that information campaign. I actually think it's a really interesting question, not just about the internet, uh, which is which is fascinating, and, and I'll listen to that podcast, but also just more generally about Russia's cyber operations. I mean, I, I've been sort of um, a little bit of a cyber skeptic, I think, uh, over over the last decade or so. In, in international relations, there have been a lot of people have been basically saying, you know, conventional war is is uh, out outmolded. Like the new the next war we're going to have is going to be all about cyber taking out financial systems and and electric grids and and this and that. And I've been sort of skeptical because I think some of the the first of all some of the claims that that people that talk about this make I think are a little bit um, they inflate the capabilities of some of the actors right. So we know that that you know Russia does do things like you know, puts in malware, viruses, and things like that. They, they're they very good at, you know, ransomware, the, the non-state actors that do these things. Uh, they're good at sort of like wiping out uh, types of data. But that's a lot different than, you know, taking out an entire electric grid, right? Or taking out like a country's internet access. I think some of those things to do it with just cyber capabilities, from my understanding, is actually quite difficult, which is why the, the question is like, why hasn't Russia used physical you know, kinetic weapons to take out infrastructure that supports uh, the internet, that supports the electric grid and, and stuff like that. So I've been, I've been somewhat skeptical of like the inflated uh, claims. But having said that, Russia is an actor that we know likes to do a lot of cyber uh, types of attacks, right? They have a, a long history in Ukraine of doing this, actually, like going back to the previous uh, uh, invasion of Crimea. So they've done it in the past, and the question is, like, why why aren't they doing it now? And I guess more just more generally, why hasn't this turned into a cyber war, so to speak, uh, and has remained much more of a of a sort of mid twentieth century type of of war with boots on the ground and actual physical physical fighting? And I think that is a really interesting question. Part of I think the reason it might have to do with with two different things. One is. I think part of it is that the the Ukrainians and uh, the Western sort of alliance 
has actually done a decent job at at fighting back in these in these cyber attacks, right? So they've learned from previous uh, periods where Russia has been successful in, in you know using malware and things like that, and frankly have gotten better at being able to defend themselves from it with with help from the United States, the EU, and and so forth. And so like there's been a little bit of a learning curve, and so that the the tactics that Russia has been using traditionally are not are not working uh, quite as well. But I think there's also a sense that that if this war uh, is about sort of the control of Ukraine, like so, if we think that you know the one of the the aims going in in the first place was to um, occupy, to take over, uh, and to basically have a situation where they're going to walk into Kiev and basically you know install whatever whatever leader they want, I think at the outset cyber doesn't really align nicely with those goals i mean your goal is to take a country over and yes information is going to be part of that and having the internet access is going to you know potentially help ukraine but i think at the beginning of the war the 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 thought process was for the goals that we have this has to be a physical kinetic kind of of war so that's my hunch as to why they it wasn't on the on the it was certainly on the menu of options for them to to use but it didn't necessarily align so much with the aims of the operation uh which were again much more sort of traditional in in nature I think part of the perception of how the cyber, the kind of shadow cyber war that's accompanied the the, the military war, how, how some of the perceptions about how that has have gone. I mean, maybe the big picture sense we get that it hasn't, there hasn't been much happening there, isn't quite right. When you look down, kind of at the nitty gritty of these reported cyber attempted cyber attacks on Ukraine and allies, they're actually a fair number. I was just kind of, uh, as you were, as I was tuning out while you were talking, as I, as I often do, I was like pulling up a, a list of, of cyber attacks against Ukraine. There's quite a lot. Right. And, and so I think part of the, the impression we get if we're not kind of following this closely on a day-to-day basis is based on the kind of general lack of effectiveness of those attacks in derailing uh, anything that Ukraine is trying to do. There was one attack that like posted a fake uh, a message from Zelensky saying he was uh, contemplating surrender, like the beginning of the conflict, but that stuff didn't work. Right. And so, and so because of that, it was kind of dropped into all the noise around the, around the conflict and we don't pay a lot of attention to it. One of the reasons that stuff might not have worked um, is because there has been, I think, significant Western support in defending Ukraine um, against against these attacks and kind of uh, dealing with the immediate fallout of these attacks, kind of piece things back together quickly um, to keep everything running. Uh, and also because Ukraine has been able to communicate itself. And so if if, in fact, the reason that Russia has not removed Ukraine's ability to communicate with the West beginning of this conflict, taking out internet connections and such. If the reason they've done that is because they don't think it's important, that doesn't kind of rise to the level of strategic, uh, strategic importance, they want to save their weapon systems for other things. Well, then I think that's a mistake because one of the reasons that uh, Ukraine has been able to kind of shake off all of these other kind of disinformation um, attacks is because it can get its own message out. Right. It can reach out directly to the to the West. It can reach out directly on Twitter um, and it can kind of make these make it the argument for itself. And so it you know doesn't have to it, it has a built in way of trying to combat uh, disinformation and misinformation on the part of Russia. So, you know, it is important um, that these kinds of uh, communications infrastructure and the ability to reach out from your reach out direct from Kiev to Washington and, and talk directly to decision makers. And I think that may have played a role in Ukraine's success in the initial days of the war in rallying support to its to its side. Yeah, I think to, the surprising bit is is not so much uh, why they're not doing it from an information 
operations perspective, but more why Russia doesn't think that taking out the internet, for example, would make their lives easier in the invasion, right? It seems like if, if, if communication is, is a required component of defending your country, both internally, you know, generals and things like that, communicating with one another, whether they're doing it by phone or, or you know, cable wire or whatever, and externally with, with Western leaders, you would think that Russia would want to limit that that ability. So the, the surprising bit is like why they would not see the strategic value in making it much more difficult for Ukrainian leadership to communicate internally with its own people and externally with with outside uh, audiences and and uh, decision makers who are ultimately making decisions about how they're going to help defend Ukraine. But I think the other thing that's going on here too is that it's very difficult for Russia to counter the information campaign. Of Ukraine when the war is just objectively going very poorly for them. I mean, one of the things that's happened is you don't need Twitter to tell the world about how the war is going. We can see it through things like CNN's reporting, and we can see it through the BBC, and we can see the journalists, you know, talking about it. We can see troops retreating from cities. We can see the the, the aftermath uh, in photographs, and so I think there's a sense in which you know also that any type of of Russian information operations campaign is going to be hindered by the fact that people with their eyes that have access to, to to this data are looking at the situation and it's obvious to them that this is not going well uh for for Russia. Now it's clearly the case that Ukraine is aided by the fact that Zelensky can get you know talk to parliaments around the world and accept awards and things like that. But I think even if he didn't have that that capability, you know, the fact that we have journalists reporting on the ground and showing us what's going on is also making it very difficult for Russia to, to create a new kind of social reality that people, uh, that they want people to accept. Yeah. And there have been points in this conflict where there have been pockets of the, of the conflict that have been without communications and we've kind of seen, uh, bad things happen there. Um, so in the siege of Mariupol, uh, there was, a there's some uh, incredible reporting from kind of the last, uh, the last journalists in town um, struggling to get the information out about what was going on there and a uh, pretty, pretty grim situation. Um, and so we, we've kind of seen that happening it, as Ukraine has retaken some of the territory that Russia was occupying. Then reporters come in. Then we see some of the uh, atrocities that occurred. That stuff is not being reported in real time because there's no one on the ground there. So where you do see these pockets of information being cut off no internet access for example that's when uh you know uh when we really do see that stuff is taking place there that, that we that we don't have a good picture into um and so you know the importance of being able to get the message out i think is um shown in these in these examples when we we didn't have access and we saw uh later what had gone on i think the other thing to, to note too is um you know just because we haven't seen a lot of cyber or, or to your earlier point we have seen potentially a lot of cyber uh, attacks and things like that, but not necessarily at the, the effectiveness level that we would have expected, uh, that could all change tomorrow. I mean, it could, it's very possible that Russia is just waiting uh, and their, their strategic thinking is such that they're waiting for something to happen or they're waiting for, you know, things to get desperate enough in order to support their, uh, their physical military. So something might change where they unleash a whole series of attacks that prove to be very effective. Maybe they're waiting for, you know, weather to change, who knows? So it's possible that we just haven't seen it yet, and that it, it, it will happen. Um, but I think the, the things that you're pointing out are all, you know, very reasonable explanations for why we haven't seen more quite yet. 
there may also be a sense that the internet is a slippery enough target that it cannot be easily removed, even by attacking uh, with missiles internet infrastructure in in Ukraine. So there are many paths to the internet, right? And and so even taking out the kind of major infrastructure in the country, you still have satellite links. You still have other ways to do it. And, um, you know, an attack on satellites is like a whole, a whole other thing and potentially very escalatory if, if Russia takes it. It's not, it's not impossible. It's not beyond their capabilities, um, but it's definitely a, a different kind of um, warfare. And so, you know, Russia might calculate, like, there's no way we're going to be able to cut off Zelensky, right? Like, the, the guy clearly has a satellite phone. And so it would, take, it would take a lot to really cut off that one link. And so maybe it's not worthwhile to, to spend a lot of effort on this where... And, you know, there's a, there are differing views on this of how, how difficult it would be to actually cut off Ukraine completely from communications. Anyway, your boy, John Mearsheimer, boy. Woof. Oh, my goodness. We're not Woof. talking about that. I didn't read the whole thing, but oh, my God. Like... Well, this is why. So a number of reasons I don't respond to press inquiries, right? <laughs> I, I can only cause trouble for myself. Um, and that's why I, I tend to say no. I usually refer people to you. So maybe you get my. Uh... Yeah, I get a lot. I, I, I love yeah. talking to press. Yeah, yeah. You like to you like to see your name in print. I understand. Did I tell you the time I talked to the guy at USA, USA Today for an hour? This is before the uh, Russia invasion of, of Ukraine. The most late, the latest one, and I, I, we went we went through everything, like the various reasons why he might invade, why he might not, you know, longstanding NATO, blah blah blah, right? And the quote that he used for me was me essentially saying, "Well, we might be in a crisis right now, or we might not be." Said Professor Holmes. <laughs> I talked to him for an hour, and then he, he was like, "Well, are we in a crisis or not? <laughs> I don't know." <laughs> yeah, I was very frustrating. Very frustrating. So I, I, there's two types of academics, it seems to me. One is a type that, that I think you would, I would characterize you as this. You know, you're content to do your work. You teach your students. You, you publish your research. You have your ideas that you try to get out into the world in the academic sense by publishing articles and, and scholarly books. Uh, and that's, that's how you kind of view yourself. That's your role. That's, your, that's what you do. There's another group of people who do that stuff. But they also view themselves as public intellectuals, right? They want to sort of change the, the debate or have an effect on the policy world through things like media. Or maybe they don't care about changing politics or having an effect, but rather they like the, the sort of uh, uh, being in the press. They like to send to their, their parents or their grandma, you know, look, I was just quoted in the New York Times or I, I got this op-ed in the whatever thing. And so they take some intrinsic kind of like value from that. But if you don't have a desire to, like, affect the policy uh, world through media or you don't get intrinsic value from, like, having your name up in lights and people, like, looking at you and, and following you on Twitter and, you know, all that kind of stuff, then I agree with you. Speaking to the media is, is really uh, kind of a silly, silly thing to do. It's, it's not costless because it takes your time, number one, but also if you say something stupid, that's out there in the world now forever. Yeah. You know, the good thing with academic articles and books is no one reads them, right? But if you're on CNN, you know, if you're on BBC or USA Today, you say something dumb, like we might be in a crisis or we might not. Well, now that that's going to haunt you for the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. We also don't have a studio. So it's not like if you want to go be on TV, you have to do it through like your Skype thing or 
you got to drive to Richmond or, or, or Virginia Beach or something like that because we don't I have on campus like a media studio. When I was teaching at Fordham, they had a media studio. You just go in like the basement of some, some thing and there's like lights and, you know, screens and what have you. And you could get like dialed in through the, the fast connection thingy to like CNN or MSNBC or, or whatever and like look professional. But we don't have that. So. I, I think that, that studios are, are no longer a thing. We don't need them in the, the post COVID. I think everyone is doing uh, TV hits from their from their computer. Like I, I don't think do they? I mean, it just seems like a waste now because it's like so commonplace to see some expert on you know CNN yeah. who's just got you know they're sitting in their office. So I, I like I, there was a time right when like the only way to look professional on TV was to be in a professional studio with a backdrop and. You know, the good lighting and whatever. But I think nowadays, like... Maybe that's true. You get a ring light and you're... I, I just don't see... I, I think most of the time when we see people, you know, academics doing a TV hit, it's it's uh, just from sitting in their office. I don't know. But if but if you felt strongly about this, I bet uh, GRI will build you a studio. I mean, it, what does it take? It's like a, like a little... Like it. a backdrop and some lighting. Yeah. And I think having a, a strong, like, internet connection helps, you know. I think like we got that. We got that. Yeah, <laughs> my, my internet doesn't work at, at home. Like half the time, I wake up in the morning, Cox like to do something, and I my internet doesn't work. Okay, but your uh, office internet works pretty well. I would I think that's so. true. Yeah. That's true. I haven't had many issues. Well, I hope everybody has a good Thanksgiving. Jeff, are you going to cook a turkey? No, not this year. I'm going to uh, some relatives who um, are therefore responsible for cooking a turkey. Um, or something I'm not, uh, as, as, because I'm not hosting, I think I'm off the hook for, for the, for the main course. I, I am having, um, guests come and stay, uh, who are eating on a plant-based diet right now. And so I am going to be trying to brainstorm some, some ideas. Tofurky. Well, I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to worry about the turkey. I'm thinking like if I just provide some like other other sides like i don't think they're going to be uh, you know offended or upset that people are having turkey at the thanksgiving so but i think having other alternatives at the table that that they're uh, comfortable with or that they can eat for their for their diet will be will be good so i'm actually thinking thinking of leaning a little bit on some korean options maybe some like banchan um ideas for the for the table there's a great serious eats like feature of like a like a korean take on thanksgiving with some really cool um, options, so I think I think I might kind of draw from that a little bit. How, how about you? Are you hosting this year? I really like that idea. Actually, the the bosom, the like um, pork uh, slow, you know, cooked uh, with the, the the sauce. That sounds really really quite nice. I am hosting Jeffrey. I'm a traditionalist in the sense that uh, when it comes to Thanksgiving, I like to prepare a turkey the old-fashioned way. I don't cut it up into 1,600 pieces. I don't put it in a turkey fryer. I, I, I put it in the oven. Uh, I might this, this year fool around with soaking uh, like a rag or cheesecloth in butter and putting that over the turkey. I've been I, 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 Every year I think about doing that, and then I, I wimp out and don't do it because I've never done it before. I'd like to try that. You, you know, I'm for yeah, the, that's the that's listener, not that's not gonna. That's, he's shaking his. Yeah, don't do that. Yeah, that's not gonna, that's not gonna do anything. No. Uh, I know this is controversial. I also like to stuff the turkey, very much, with stuffing. It's also it's not a good idea. Well, I I mean stuffing is okay. It's it's cooking. You you got to pre cook the stuffing, and I know you don't do this. We've covered this, folks. No, we've covered this on, every every, on, every year. We have the same conversation. I've never gotten food poisoning by my undercooked stuffing. Uh, I just throwing that out there. Knock on. But that's because you're overcooking the turkey. Well, that's probably true. 
But it's very difficult to not overcook the turkey. If you're not going to cut it up into 100 pieces, let's be honest, right? I mean, the breast meat and the, and the you dark meat. You got to spatchcock it. You don't scatchcock it. They, they don't <laughs> cook at the same rate, you know? And one is done before the other. So, you know, I think this is an argument for frying, but I've, I have fried a turkey before, and I don't, I don't actually think that the taste is, like, amazing. And then you're left with all this oil afterwards, and yeah. it's gross, and what are you going to do with that? Well, and it's so dangerous, I, too, is the other thing. Yeah. I like to live dangerously, but I, I would not, uh, just don't do that inside guys. Like put, make, do it out in your backyard. Yeah. Uh, don't fry a turkey inside, but I just kind of feel like you go through that effort and the, the end product is actually not all that, uh, better than just roasting it. And it has, it's, the cleanup is just really atrocious. Have you, do you brine? Have you brined? I've gone back and forth on brining. Uh, I often do brine, uh, in a simple kind of salt, you know, based, uh, thing overnight. You know, but uh, I've also done a dry brine. I yep. mess around with dry brines, you mm-hmm. know, it's quite good. I think brining helps. Oh, for sure. For sure it helps. It's not a game changer, but it helps. It keeps it a little bit more moist. And I, I like uh, stuffing. I like mashed potatoes. I might do a Brussels sprout. I like Brussels sprouts. So you, you do a very nice Brussels sprout, by the way. Thank you. Yes, I, I enjoy a good Brussels sprout. But not good for vegans because I like to have the bacon. I like right. to do it. You know, that's the best part. So are you having a big group? No, just my in-laws okay. uh, this year. So it's going to be a very small group. Okay. And so we'll get like, you know, 20, 22-pound turkey, and we'll have some leftovers, and uh, it'll be great. Yeah. I always, I always cook a huge turkey. I think it's – I like walking – you know, there's nothing better than putting the turkey in. You go run the turkey trot. You come back. You know, after a couple of hours, you walk in your house, and it's just the smells. Magical. And then you look in the in the oven. You see that big turkey roasting. It's just, it's just great. I love that. It is very nice. Yeah. You got to watch out about the tryptophan in Turkey. That makes you sleepy. Right. That's I've I've heard about that. Yeah. Well, Jeff, this has been a pleasure uh, as always. We've really covered a lot of territory today, and um, I, I just have a sense this is going to be one of our more popular uh, episodes <laughs> really? going going forward. <laughs> I, I don't know what magic you're going to come up with on the editing side, but I, it's going to be good. No I'm going to record. I'm going to have to record like a separate monologue that to provide some some content for this. I think next time. I, I think we say this every time. I think we should have a plan. <laughs> yes, yes, we need a plan. We should maybe even discuss before we start the, the recording what we're going to talk about. We should talk about um, AI uh, graphics. I okay. Next time, I do want to talk to you about AI because I'm a, I'm an AI skeptic, and I, I you know I want to hear like why I should be enthralled with AI. Okay, both in international relations and and elsewhere. Yeah, well, I mean, if you're looking for a taste of uh, AI, you can check out our new podcast logo that is shown on our, on our website. It's entirely created with, uh, you know, artificial intelligence. I typed into a prompt, cheap talk with Jeff Kaplan and Marcus Holmes, and it just spit out um, this beautiful this beautiful graphic. Right. I, I saw some earlier versions of this, and not all of them were appropriate. No, not all of them were great. But it's, um, it's really quite uh, terrifying, frankly. That uh, we've we've kind of reached the point where computers can can do this for us. I think there are a lot of interesting ethical questions around it, including like copyright. Who who own who owns this graphic that I created by typing five words into an online prompt? Is oh, that's this easy. you you do well? Okay, but I mean the what about all of the pictures that were used to train the model that built this graphic? So real artists in the world have contributed to you know, making art. Yeah. And then we train this artificial intelligence model right. on all of their work. 
Right. And now it's spitting out new work. Yeah, that, but artists, that, artists are artists in, a, in the traditional old school way are also trained by looking at other people's art and that, that helps them produce their art. I don't see the difference. Really? Yeah. Okay. If you're an artist, you are an artist of, of, a, of a type. But if you're a painter, you are, you are trained by looking at Picasso and Van Gogh and every, every painting you've ever seen in your life. And then that magic happens in your own head and you, you produce something that is sort of a, a combination in some sense of all everything, every piece of art you've ever seen in your life. That seems like not saliently uh, different than what the computer is doing. It's taking observations of art and saying, I'm going to make some new art, just like you do when you paint. Okay, how about this? There is a lawsuit right now, class action, against uh, GitHub. You know what GitHub is? Yeah, that's like the the, the, the website where people post uh, code and whatnot. Exactly. So you use it yeah. it's a, to, to manage your your programming project. You post code. People can use your code, contribute to your code, depending on how you have it set up. And GitHub is owned by Microsoft. And there's a class action uh, against Microsoft right now uh, kind of working its way through the system. Because Microsoft designed a new feature for GitHub where it will recommend to you ways of dealing with particular problems you're having in, in your code. So in, in, for those who are familiar with computer programming, if you, if you program in a, a programming environment, very often they have something called autocomplete or, or something like that, where uh, you start typing a command in your programming language of choice and the computer will like fill in the rest of the line for you because it knows like what you're getting at there. So Microsoft has designed a more advanced version of this that instead of just filling in one, one line of code, it will fill in like an entire function to do something for you. Um, and that function, it turns out, is been produced by an, a machine learning model, an AI model that was trained on publicly available code snippets on GitHub. Code snippets that in many cases were not for commercial use. They were um, they have a particular um, license that allows them to be used for non-commercial purposes only. So here we have a commercial product that was trained based on thousands and thousands of these publicly available code snippets, even though those code snippets were only for non-commercial use. And now this commercial product is offering to new computer programmers functions that are derived from this body of work that others have done. In this way, it's, I think, a little bit similar to the AI drawing um, algorithms where it's trained on this body of work. It was not intended for that purpose, right? And now some company is profiting off of all these other people's work just by kind of remixing it in, a, in an AI way. Do you think that's a situation that's more, uh, like, ethically questionable? Are you, are you anticipating a class action lawsuit against us and the money that we've been making off of this logo? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm sure that's coming down the pike. It's, you know, we got we got deep pockets now with the Patreon and the Squarespace sponsorship. So I think, um, yeah, come, come at us. Yeah, this is this is uh, Copilot. Is this that what it's called? Yeah, that's right. Very good. I, I know my stuff. Yeah, I, I I I see what you're saying. I think the the fact that it was based on commercial, like if 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 Copilot was using only like open source, uh, publicly like available, not for profit, you know, types of stuff. I think that that would I, I would be on uh, more solid ground in the argument that I'm making. I agree with you that using it for um, or or drawing from code that was written for commercial purposes and not intended to be used by like the broader 
kind of universe, like the public, quote unquote, I think that makes it a little bit more problematic. So I, I would grant you that that is a little bit of a, of a dicey situation. But to me, it's like very, very similar because we have code here that is publicly visible, but yeah. it's not for you to take and use in your own commercial app, right? It's right. it's it's there under some license that prevents you from doing that, right? For only non-commercial purposes. So you, you wouldn't be able to steal it and just put it in your app directly, right? right? Similarly, much of the art that's out there that these models have been trained on is not, you You couldn't like just put it out there as your own. It's somebody else's right. art. It's not for your own commercial use. If you used it as your podcast logo, you would owe a fee to whoever designed it. That would be, you can't just take it, right? And so I think in that way, it's very similar. And we have this machine learning algorithms kind of training on this and producing something that is new. It really is new. It's not the same, but without that body of work, you don't get these new pieces of art. You don't get these new pieces of code. And right. so I think it is like an ethically interesting. Uh, this is, uh, yeah, this might be an agree to disagree. You, you do see what I'm saying though. No. Like without, without. <laughs> no, I don't. I'm just saying, without Picasso, Jeff, you would not be where you are today that's, I mean, as an that's artist. Fair. That's, a, that's yeah. a fair point. And maybe that's a good point to end on. Marcus, thank you very much for joining me today. Wide-ranging conversa conversation. We really covered it all. Hope everyone has a wonderful Thanksgiving. And if, if you're listening to this after Thanksgiving, I hope you had a nice Thanksgiving. I hope you, hope you cooked your, your turkey appropriately. And don't do what Marcus does. And, Watch out for that tryptophan. Yeah, and eat the... Uh, the Sketch, the, um, sketch pot here. The stuffing that the raw turkey juice has been dripping on it's for raw hours cooks. without yeah. being fully cooked. It, it starts raw, just like the turkey, but you cook it, so it's fine. Uh, Biden uh, met with Xi, right? I did talk to. Did you see my BBC hit on that one? No. Oh, I talked to the. I talked to the BBC. Nice. It's funny how we just got through talking about how me talking to me is stupid, and then I. No, this was actually quite the interesting thing for the students. They they contacted me and they said you want to do a, a interview and they didn't say whether it was gonna be live or not so I'm always a little I don't I don't really love live stuff you know I like to be able to like have them edit the stupid things that I say like you do for me on this podcast mm -hmm. but I assume you do that I don't listen oh to yeah these. yeah but in, in any case <laughs> definitely they they, they call me up <laughs> call and me the up. listeners I'm are grateful right? that you, you edit, I'm just gonna pretend that you edit these very <laughs> yeah. very nicely and sympathetically and. Make sure my points are coherent. We've been talking for a half hour. We've got like two minutes of content in this thing. So yeah. Well, we we'll use this for the opening where okay. we talk about how you edit the podcast and it's like, ha ha, it's a joke. So anyway, so, but they did, the, we did the interview and they, and they, they were like, no, 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 we're just going to, it's not going to be live. We're just going to record it. And they, and I said, uh, can we do it on WhatsApp? And I said, oh, okay. And they were like, WhatsApp through their experience is provides the like cleanest audio transmission when dealing with people like in the United States. So they're in London, obviously they're talking to me. They said, WhatsApp of all the, the things it's better than Skype. It's better than zoom. It's better than whatever is, the, is the way to do it. So it makes me wonder, should we actually be doing this recording this over WhatsApp? No. Okay. I believe that WhatsApp provides pretty clean audio, but it's not going to be as clean as what we're doing, which is having you, re you record it locally and then send me the right. file. Right. So like it, 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 even if, if you had a better like setup over there with like a decent mic instead of the, you know, $5 special you're using. No, um, I just have the iMac. Whatever's built into this thing. You're not using the built-in mic. Yeah. I don't have a mic. Are you seriously? Yeah. I don't have a mic. Jesus Christ, Marcus. 
You have no respect for the listeners? Your Can't... comment offends me. Look, I respect the listeners quite a bit. Look what no, I got I here. Had a, I had a mic. I had a mic, but it broke. Remember? <laughs> In season one, long-time listeners will know, I had a microphone that worked very well. And then I had to do this uh, presentation in Turkey. And I, had, I recorded the, me doing a PowerPoint thing for like 45 minutes, a 45-minute lecture that I was gonna, then going to send to Turkey. And they were going to like show it on the Zoom thing like where it was like the middle of the night here or whatever. And I listened to it. And the mic had screwed up somehow. And every word that I said was doubling. Oh, my God. And so. That sounds like I not had... a mic issue at all. Incidentally, that sounds like, <laughs> that sounds like a software issue. <laughs> so I threw the mic away. And I recorded the thing again. <laughs> using the mic in the iMac. Did the whole 45 minutes. Very annoying, and never. And I just that night that mic now. Is, well, that explains is, why you sound like yeah. crap on this podcast oh. all the time. Well, yeah. So I, you should. You tell me I should get a like a mic, like a USB plug it into the computer mic. Absolutely, you should get a mic. This is this okay. is why I struggle to clean up your your audio every single time, and it's it, yeah. No, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. You thought I've been using a mic for the last three. Years. I remember there being a mic there at some. There point. There was. There was. I, yeah, you don't see have, one right now, do you? No, I must you have missed the. Yeah. Yeah, like you can see, I got this thing. That looks pretty impressive. It yeah. like hangs in front it's of my round. face. Yeah, well, you for can't, the listener, yeah. I'll, I'll describe because this is not video. So it's a round mic. Actually, no, it's a many pieces. There's but there's a round thing in the front. Yeah, it's a pop filter. There's there's a boom pop mic filter. with like a little filter in front of it that kind of uh, cleans up uh, some of the the p -p 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 sounds when you talk. Um, I have a lot of those p -p 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 sounds. Yeah, and uh, you know, I this is something that William and Mary gifted to me. Um, when we began our remote adventure, oh, right. right, because I was doing a lot of, um, of recording of lectures and stuff and running lectures, uh, remotely. And so they kindly purchased for me a green screen so I could do some cool stuff in the background. Uh, one of these cool mics with a little boom arm on the desk so I can swing it out of the way, you know? So I, I recommend you, you pick one of these up and, um, if you can't get William and Mary to buy you one, which I think you could. Um, then I uh, I think this would be a good use of our Patreon funds or the the merch. Oh right, I haven't checked the Patreon account yeah, in a long or the, time. Yeah, uh, the you know the money we're getting in from the ads. Does um, that just get direct deposited into my bank account? Because I don't remember seeing any. I mean, it gets direct deposited into my bank account. <laughs> it's not clear <laughs> <laughs> how you get your cut, but I'm happy to like cut you a check for the microphone for sure. So okay, all right. Well, we'll use some of my Patreon money, my Patreon funds yeah. for. Well, well, there's a link in the show notes, my friends. <laughs> 